Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in May. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The USU Center for Anticipatory Intelligence, or CAI, looks across all disciplines to spot threats posed by emerging technologies and other threats. CAI students predicted a novel zoonotic outbreak last year. We're going to talk about that, and uh, today on the program, we have the director of the Center for Anticipatory Intelligence and USU Associate Professor of Political Science, Jeannie Johnson, on with us uh, for the hour. Jeannie Johnson, welcome to the program. Tom, thanks. Uh, good to have you with us. We've got a little bit of an echo, so we'll have to make sure we're, we solve that. Um, uh, we also have with us uh, two students from the center. Uh, James Brazel, do we have you on? Yep. Okay, great. And Calvin Liu. Yes, I am. Welcome to the program. We're also talking with Matt Barrett, who is co-founder of the Center for Anticipatory Intelligence. He's former assistant director of the CIA. Matt Barrett, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tom. Uh, appreciate you being on with us. We're going to talk about the coronavirus pandemic through an anticipatory intelligence lens. Uh, let's see. So do we have uh, Jeannie back with, I guess we're working you on bet. that. Uh, okay. Yep, right gr- great. Good deal. Get rid of the echo? And I think we got rid of the echo. Yeah, so that's good. Um, so uh, tell us what anticipatory intelligence is. Well, the label is within the national intelligence uh, strategy that can be found online. So it's a creation of the intelligence community by and large. The idea is to think through uh, potential over-the-horizon events before they arrive and therefore do a better job of preparing for them. This is especially important in an era of emergent technology where so much of our civilization and the way we connect to each other is changing. And in addition, we have a changing climate on top of that, which makes a lot of our biological world in flux. And so thinking through those complex systems, both the um, technological ones that we create and the biological ones that exist, It means we have the potential for something the intelligence community calls emergence, which is a really surprising event uh, that can take us off guard and can have potentially catastrophic consequences. Well, like a coronavirus pandemic, (laughs) right? You know, it's interesting. So James and Calvin will both speak to this, but a coronavirus outbreak was not actually what you would call a black swan event, a completely unforeseen, wow, where did this come from kind of event. And part of the genius of Calvin's paper that he'll speak to is that he walked through just how likely and plausible it was for an event like this to take place. And not just once, but potentially with increased frequency in upcoming years because of climate change. Yeah, and I think this was, uh, Calvin's paper was submitted, what, December of last year? Yep. Yeah, so yeah. so well before any of us knew about the uh, about the pandemic. Right. Uh, but your point is that we, we, we should be able to, you know, foresee at least some of this, or, or, or in general terms. Uh, I was reading an article, this has been Liberalis magazine, um, the, the publication of the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. There, there is an analogy there, and, 
illustration that helped me understand anticipatory intelligence. Um, I'm not sure if this was yours, Jenny Johnson, or someone else's, the difference between a baseball catcher and a baseball hitter. So, um, no, that's not mine. I okay. can't claim it. That's <laughs> our, our excellent staff writers at USU who took a really complex concept and boiled it down into terms that were easily accessible. And, you know, we chuckle because people stumble on our name often, anticipatory intelligence, and we get a little bit of teasing for um, how many syllables are involved. But the bottom line is it is what we are about, and it's the proper label for what we do. And we are really proud of the fact that we are the first in the nation um, to stand up a program that focuses on anticipatory intelligence in an intensive way. And the reason that um, this is difficult to achieve and we're so proud of it is that it must be an interdisciplinary program in order to be done right. So if you're going to do a good job of anticipating events or emergence within complex systems, you have to have experts from a really wide variety of backgrounds bringing their expertise to bear in order to understand the dimensions of your problem. So Calvin and James represent two of those dimensions. James comes from the social sciences. Calvin comes from the hard sciences. And to date, within our two cohorts that have come through our CAI program, we have over 30 majors represented, which mm. is really impressive and is part of the magic of creating innovative solutions and timely new insights. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Um, just I've, I've brought it up, so I'll, I'll, I'll flesh this out. What the writers in this article said is, is uh, you know, before maybe the, the intelligence community is like a, a baseball catcher, stop the balls, right? Stop the incoming mm -hmm. uh, things mm -hmm. that are coming in. But, uh, you, you know, you know the point from which it's coming. It's coming from the pitcher. What about something, a rotten fruit coming out of the stand or, or other un mm -hmm. unanticipated? And so then they compared maybe anticipatory intelligence to being a successful hitter. You've got to recognize the oncoming pitch. Hey, Jeannie, can I jump in? And um, you could just, this is Matt, by the way. Yes. Um, you, have, you have three male voices coming at you this morning, Tom. We probably ought to identify ourselves when we jump in. But, Very um, good. Jeannie's point of the necessity of bringing in people with different disciplines. There's myriad examples of why that's relevant. Um, data scientists, data science is uh, playing a very big role in the ability of, of us to anticipate um, human and machine behavior. And there's a lot of power coming out of that science. Folks in the social sciences realm, obviously, are not studying that. They're studying other things, history, um, cultural anthropology. If those two worlds don't come together a little bit, <clears throat> some of the folks in the data science realm they will not be able to anticipate what some of the cool things they're bringing to society, uh, what those effects might be across society. It's the folks over in the social and behavior sciences that could understand and anticipate that, but they've got to have a sense of what is happening in the data science realm. But they they won't see it. They won't see it coming. And and a point that you just made about what if it what if the pitch isn't coming from the pitcher? Um, the class that uh, Jeannie and I taught just this past semester, Art and Science of Anticipating the Future. That covered um, topics as, as, as wide as uh, cognitive bias, complexity science, team dynamics, visual thinking. And 
complexity science is a big topic, so you know we could we could spend two hours on just that. But let me just touch on one aspect of complexity science and why it matters. Getting back to your illustration of um, what if the ball's not coming from the pitcher, a um, a Swiss watch, you know, expensive Breitling watch, that's a complicated piece of equipment. It's not complex in the sense that you can look into that watch, you can see the gears and what's happening, and in a very linear kind of way, you can sort of see if if that gear starts to break down, these other gears will start to break down, the watch will stop. Complexity science is exactly the opposite. And one aspect of it is there's interdependence among a bunch of actors and factors, but you can't see with utter clarity the degree of which that interdependence is going to manifest itself. So you suddenly have a whole bunch of stuff happening that's been happening for decades, and on one day uh, a, a Tunisian um, street merchant sets himself on fire, and the entire Middle East, you know, you have a micro-event that suddenly erupts, kind of surprises everybody with a macro-event across, across the realm. That's complexity. Mm. Yeah, and the world's getting more complex, right? Yes. Not less. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so, Jeannie Johnson, this is, you know, both of you, you and Matt, were both in the CIA, right? And the intelligence community is tasked with peering into the future, right? This very complex uh, future and, and, and a lot of uh, moving parts and then trying to protect us or predict threats or protect us from, from threats. What, what are the factors that... Uh, that go into anticipating these these threats? Well, as we've mentioned, we we are really proud of the fact that this is interdisciplinary because that's one of the things that the intelligence community is trying to achieve. And in some ways, you know, our program has been complemented as being ahead of the curve, even within the intelligence community. So we work with National Intelligence University, which is the credential granting university for the intelligence community. And, um, and some of their faculty members have flown out and worked with us on our program. And part of why they're willing to make such a strong investment in us is that we are able to do things here at Utah State that are more nimble and flexible and exploratory than uh, the larger bureaucracies of the intelligence community. So one of those that we're exploring is building these interdisciplinary teams and having students test out a wide range of different kinds of analytical and anticipatory tools to understand better what their utility may be and also what their limits may be. So the the course that Matt was referencing, the art and science of anticipating the future, was exactly that kind of experiment this year. And the students came away with just really stunning insights about where some of these tools can get you and where they fall short. Mm. And uh, I guess we always have to ask, well, what what aren't we asking, right? With the, mm. <laughs> the blind spots that must that must worry the intelligence community, for example. Well, you heard me speak about this on your show before, uh, Tom, but one of the glaring blind spots for our intelligence and defense community is a thorough investment in understanding the societies and cultures of other places. We're pretty good at focusing on technologies, and we're pretty good at focusing on um, the sorts of things that we can capture and count but really understanding the way other peoples around the world think and operate and therefore 
the way their societies are going to react to these events, that remains a deficit spot that we need to continue to work on. That's why this needs well, to be... Well, and it's not... You know, go ahead. Oh, sorry, Tom. No, I, go, I go just ahead. wanted to add that it, 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 even, um, you know, I spent 32 years out there with those folks, and they, they uh, absolutely wield world-class um, expertise in culture and um, in history. The second part of what's challenging for them is to articulate the relevant parts of that in a way that a senior policymaker, maybe a president, maybe a secretary of state or defense, um, articulate it in a way that isn't 47 pages. It might have to be a, a page and a half, and it has to be pretty forceful. You know, if they've got a view and they're making a, they're trying to make a point, that same secretary of defense has 17 other issues coming at him um, or, or her at some point, and um, you know that intelligence voice has to be both um, correct and and persuasive, sufficiently forceful, and that that's a whole other uh, sort of challenging and intriguing area of the uh, intel policy dynamic. Yeah, got to be a good communicator as, as well. Um, so, Jeannie Johnson, before we go to our, our students, uh, if I want to talk to them, um, I guess the, the what we've been talking about here is an illustration of why this needs to be interdisciplinary. And I was reading that uh, you have all, all matter of majors, including an art history major. That's right. And not only do we have an art history major, but we really benefited from the mentorship of the art department this last semester. One of the challenges that the intelligence community has assigned to itself is to do a better job of thinking visually, of cognitive visualization, because when you're dealing with a complex problem set, there are so many different variables that it's really difficult to capture the full um, extent of the problem if you're just doing it in written prose. Visual images do a better job of helping you get your head around it and then also help you do a better job of communicating in, um, in simpler, more accessible terms the problem set that you're trying to convey. So we invited the art department to come and uh, show us some examples of really effective visual communication and walk us through the steps required to create effective visual communication and so appreciated their mentorship and the learning that we received from them and look forward to continuing that relationship into the future. Mm. By the way, Jeannie Johnson, before I turn to Calvin Liu, did you... Um, <laughs> when when this uh, pandemic hit, did you did you say to yourself, "Hey, wait a minute"? <laughs> I received a paper in December about this. Oh, we were all cheering Calvin on. We were all <laughs> cheering Calvin on. He got to do the victory dance, right? Yeah. Uh, I think you would be a little terrified to know all of the different things that our students have anticipated. And again, these aren't. This isn't a crystal ball kind of exercise. These are. Um, really smart students in their area of expertise looking at the conditions, like Matt was mentioning, the conditions that are present and saying, hey, we've got conditions present for this kind of an event in a complex system. A very small event could start a cascade effect that would result in a large catastrophe. So, um you know, we, our students get used to thinking about the end of the world in lots of different angles, and, um, and, and Calvin's is the one that came to pass. But, but just to give you a couple of examples, uh, we have one student 
looking at something called the Kessler syndrome. And this would happen if space debris hit one of our satellites and caused the cascade effect in, in space. It would effectively take out our entire GPS network <clears throat> and bring civilization as we understand it to a halt for a while. Um, way more of our lives, our financial lives, our transportation lives, um, communication lives are connected to GPS than you might imagine. And one piece of space debris uh, that uh, fell out of orbit and started a cascade effect could massively alter that. Uh, another student looked at if the Russians decided to get serious about targeting a disinformation campaign at disrupting financial markets. As you know, the stock market rests almost entirely on confidence, on attitudes. And so if their disinformation campaign um, increased in sophistication in the way that they have planned, they, they have the capability potentially to really disrupt financial markets. Another one, and this is a, a favorite of Matt's, but um, is an, a solar flare from the sun that has the capability to wipe out uh, electricity for a significant region and, you know, based on the size of the solar flare, potentially for a significant patch of the globe and how difficult it would be to get electricity back up and running because of the lack of redundancy in our electrical grid systems. So that's just, you know, gives you sort of a smattering of the variety of kinds of uh, potential incidents that these students examine and play out the consequences, not just the first-order consequences, but the second, third, fourth-order consequences in a complex environment. And the utility, of course, is thinking through those scenarios so that you are better prepared when they hit. So I have to admit, we almost had a little bit of collective guilt as a class. Like, wow, by thinking through these scenarios, did we actually cause one to come to pass so that we could study it as a case study? You know, is this, this, it almost seems surreal to be living in the midst of one of our student papers. Yeah, that, that does seem very surreal. As you enumerate uh, just some of those examples, that's, I mean, it's fascinating and, and, and troubling. That we're, right. I, we we have a right. sense that we're vulnerable, but to to you know enumerate those that way, to, it makes us realize how vulnerable we are. But was, but you right. know we can't just bury our, our heads in the sand. That's why we need to plan out these things. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking uh, with uh, uh, people associated with the USU Center for Anticipatory Intelligence, and uh, we're talking with Jeannie Johnson, who is the director, uh, Matt Barrett, who's co-founder, and with a couple of uh, students. Um, at the center, James Brazel and Calvin Liu. I want to turn next to to Calvin Liu. So um, I, I I'm I'm just about a hundred percent sure that uh, when you submitted your paper in December, Calvin, you you probably you probably couldn't have predicted that. Okay, by by March, we're going to be all uh, you know neck deep in this. Yeah, yeah. When I first submitted my paper, like back in December, I'm just like, okay, so I just like anticipated a possibility of a pandemic happening, but the chances of this happening this like upcoming winter was like, oh, probably not. But then I get back to class uh, the following January, and the first thing I'm taking epidemiology class, and the first thing my professor says is that there's a new virus that's been found in China, and I was like shooketh because I was. Could this become the pandemic that I wrote about the yeah. last three weeks ago? So 
yeah, you could say I was kind of shocked, but like also kind of not shocked at the same time because one thing that I really like want to focus on my paper is that the next threat to our national security was not going to be a uh, like a malicious actor, but more natural. Mm-hmm. And that is one worry, right? That, that uh, you know somebody could synthetically manipulate biological organisms and then weaponize them. But but uh, as, as you said in your paper, you know, more likely that, uh, you know, I mean, nature, <laughs> nature is pretty dangerous on its own. That's what you said in the paper. Yeah, because, like, if you look back into, like, our history, most of all, most of the, pan- actually, all of the pandemics were caused by uh, nature uh, creating or expose- us exposing ourselves to the natural environment and picking up a new virus. Um, for example, um, when we look into the swine flu that happened in 2009, what caused that was the mixing of a human influenza virus, uh, the swine influenza virus, and the avian influenza virus, mixing all together in a pig, and then, ex- and then a hu- uh, human getting exposed to it, creating a new strain that none of us has been exposed to. Luckily, back then, it wasn't as lethal. Uh, but it's still spread really fast. But during our time right now with coronavirus, uh, clearly it's a lot more um, lethal and can spread a lot as well as an influenza pandemic. As you think through this, uh, uh, you you uh, say that, uh, quoting from your paper, nature is the best hacker of our technological advances. And you talk about this arms race between, you know, um, antibiotics and, uh, you know, and uh, bacterial infections. Yeah, yeah. Um, Because if you think about it, uh, nature, especially the organisms living in nature, what they want to do is to survive and to survive the best they can. With our our technologies, we've created antibiotics, but as we clearly see is that there's a lot of uh, bacteria that has developed antibiotic resistance because they've been naturally selected and the strongest survive of these bacteria because with antibiotics, um, it needs, uh, the misuse of antibiotics can allow uh, some bacteria to survive and develop a resistance and then because those bacteria survived, they can grow, multiply, and then continue to spread. Um, and with antibiotic misuse, um, that includes like not finishing your antibiotics, um, taking antibiotics for like a viral uh, infection or um, saving your antibiotics and using it and distributing it for to other people, mm. if that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Uh, by the way, what drew you to this particular topic? Is this your, is this your field? So, yeah. So, uh, what I studied for my undergrad was biochemistry and human biology. So, I was very interested in uh, microorganisms and infectious diseases. Um, during that, uh, that semester, I also took a course called Communicable Disease Control, and that really, like, uh, with, in concert with taking anticipatory intelligence, I really thought, oh, it would be nice to uh, think of a paper of having a pandemic being our next national threat. So, my, so I was attracted because I learned a lot about the fact that the chance of microorgan- microorganisms developing and becoming uh, stronger and bypassing our medical system really, like, attracted me. I kind of want to, like, see how how the United States um, infrastructure is able to handle Mm. uh, a possible pandemic. 
Um, looking at and during my research, I found that the United States, we only really had a plan for an influenza pandemic because if, uh, influenza pandemics are the ones that have the highest chance of occurring. But that doesn't mean that other pandemics could occur. Like um, back in 13, uh, the 14th century, we had uh, the bubonic plague, the Black Death, and that was caused by a bacteria. But because that was so long ago, and since we have antibiotics now, we don't think a bacteria could cause the next pandemic. But the chances of that happening is still possible given antibiotic-resistant uh, bacteria. But there's a whole host of other microorganisms that could become pandemics, like uh, protozoa, and which are like malaria and stuff. Those kind of diseases um, could be caused by protozoa. Um, but then we also have um, other viral diseases besides flu. So I really wanted to emphasize, like, oh, we are not prepared for another pandemic. Yeah, in fact, in your paper, you say the, the current pandemic preparedness plans are both too specific and too dated. So so too specific, I guess, uh, pointed toward influenzas and, and too dated? Yes. That's what you said? Yes, so um, our... A current uh, pandemic plan for uh, influenza is not being developed every year. Our last one was in 2017, but before that one, it was back in 2009 after the, during the swine flu. So our current plans for our is for possible pandemics is not being like updated constantly. It's just like oh, we'll like update it once in a while, and hopefully, it'll uh, a pandemic won't happen this next 10, 20 years. Hmm. What what's the uh, usefulness of uh, thinking through these problems before before they hit? I mean, uh, in one one <laughs> one some terms it's it's obvious, but what, and having gone through this exercise and now we're living it, what would you say about the, the usefulness of thinking through these thought exercises and and uh, doing these predictions? Oh, it was so useful because the idea is that like we're with the anticipatory intelligence program. Um, what we did is that we looked at all the possibilities that could occur if one like actor or event occurred. So with it, I like looked at possibilities of effects in like the U.S. government, uh, the, our security, and like the natural life of like humans and like business as usual. So it was very useful to like, to, like learn and apply it to my future field where I. Um, where I'll look at possibilities of uh, my research and stuff like that. Mm. So with Center for Inspector Intelligence, it's super useful, super great, because we are able to think out of the box uh, from how most people are taught uh, in their undergrads to just focus on certain problems in their field rather than um, looking uh, outwards and looking at all the different possibilities and looking at the complex system that is uh, our lives. Mm. Uh, just before we we leave this, um, and we're talking uh, right now with Calvin Liu, uh, who's a student at the uh, USU Center for Anticipatory Intelligence. Uh, he he wrote a paper submitted in December predicting uh, or thinking through uh, pandemics. And, and the, the problems and the, the fact that we're not uh, we weren't uh, prepared um, in this paper as well. You you look at another um, series of, of potential threats, and that's uh, precipitated by climate uh, change, and, and that that might uh, alter the range of uh, I guess biological 
threats. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so with climate change, um, a lot of the tropical regions are beginning to warm up, and then more like temperate regions are also beginning to warm up and becoming tropical areas. So another a big thing that I like looked at was vector-borne diseases, being uh, diseases that are spread by mosquitoes, fleas, and other like vectors, um, beginning to move up in latitude. So like if they're found in like let's say the Caribbean, they can start being found in Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Texas, and so on. So with with the warming climate, uh, these vectors are able to spread uh, up into a new territory and expose us to uh, uh, diseases that we've never been exposed to here in the United States. For example, like dengue virus. Um, it's some, there's been some people that have been uh, found with it in Florida, but they've usually been contained. But if, as the climate warms, these uh, mosquitoes that spread dengue virus is able to uh, expand their territory into con- uh, further into the continental United States, exposing more people to these viruses. Um, and then can start a little uh, mini epidemic in with dengue virus, uh, as well as like Zika virus um, and malaria, because we think of malaria as like a disease that's out in like Africa and India. But uh, what many, many don't know is that malaria used to be here in the United States, but we were able to control the mosquitoes and um, remove the mosquitoes from the populations here in the United States. But those mosquitoes are able to live in here in the United States. And if, as the climate warms, they'll start um, repopulating their old territory. Um, other problems with climate change is that as people start moving, as like one of my, uh, another student in the class about climate refugees, they'll start migrating out of their old territories, their old uh, habitats for humans, and then move into new areas. And as these new areas become populated, they may intrude onto new um, lands and be exposed to more zoonotic diseases. For uh, those who don't know what zoonotic means, um, it's the idea that a disease that is usually found in the animal world can jump towards humans. For example, HIV was able to jump from uh, chimpanzees into humans. Mm-hmm. And as with our current pandemic, coronavirus was found, was supposedly um, found in bats, but then jumped into humans and began to spread because we've started encroaching and exposing ourselves to these new diseases because of climate change. And then, yeah, the biggest thing is that vector-borne diseases and exposing ourselves to new diseases because of migration, because of animal migration as well. Mm. well we're talking here with uh, uh, Kamalu. He, uh, uh, he uh, thought through the next pandemic. Uh, this was in December, and now we're, we're living it. Uh, we're talking with uh, folks associated with USU's Center for Anticipatory Intelligence. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk with another student associated with the Center for Anticipatory Intelligence. That's James Brazel, uh, who in his paper, uh, I think also submitted in uh, December, uh, thought through uh, pharmaceutical supply chain bottlenecks and uh, drug shortages. There again, we're, we're living through this now. Um, and, uh, later in the program, later in the hour, we want to, to get into talking about security implications of the current pandemic, some things that you may not be thinking about, uh, as we live through this uh, pandemic. We'll have more following this. This is Science by the Slice. 
Among the challenges of meeting the energy demands of portable devices, electric vehicles and alternative energy storage is creating safer, more affordable, and more effective batteries. USU chemists are developing emerging aqueous organic redox flow battery technology to meet these needs. The technology addresses such challenges as unstable grid energy from solar and wind sources, along with frequent charging and discharging. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in May. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah today. The USU Center for Anticipatory Intelligence looks across all disciplines to spot threats posed by emerging technologies and other threats. Uh, two uh, students at the center predicted um, some of the things that we're living through right now, including the pandemic. Uh, this was back in December, and uh, we're talking uh, with those students, James Brazel and Calvin Liu. We're also talking with the director of the center, uh, Jeannie Johnson, and with the co-founder of the center, Matt Barrett. Uh, Jeannie Johnson and Matt Barrett both worked previously for the CIA. Matt Barrett was former assistant director of the uh, CIA. Uh, so before we uh, talk to James Brazel and uh, his uh, thought experiment uh, looking at uh, drug shortages and uh, um, and bottlenecks in the supply chain. That, that's something we're living through uh, uh, now as well. Uh, uh, for Jeannie Johnson and, and Matt Barrett, I, it, it just, I'm just curious. You both work for the CIA, and it was your job to you know, look uh, ahead to, to threats and to try to help prevent uh, threats. So kind of living in that world. And so the Center for Anticipatory Intelligence, kind of living in that world as well. If I put myself in, in your shoes... I think maybe all day looking at threats, I, I might go home a nervous wreck. I just, that's a parenthetical <laughs> question. I don't know, Jeannie and or, or Matt, you want to tackle that? Uh, well, I'll, I'll certainly let Matt pitch in as well, because I, I think he is an exceptional model of how to do this right. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to have to anticipate potential disastrous consequences, um, it's another thing to be in the middle of living them. So I'm going to let Matt speak to what it's like to keep up morale while you're in the middle of living one. What I will say is that within our center, we don't just examine threats. The second half of what we do is resilience. So the students, for each threat that they identify, isolate, and explore, they also need to think through strategies of resilience. And collectively, as a CAI cohort, we have uh, put together a resilience framework, drawing on concepts of resilience from multiple disciplines across the board. And then we look at the societies and the infrastructure that we are examining or is under threat and think through how you could fortify the resilience both of the humans that oversee those systems and of the material systems themselves. And so I think that effort to design in resilience, to design in being able to come out on the other side uh, of uh, an event, 
that may be terrible, may be catastrophic, but thinking through the ability of humans to persevere and come out on the other side of that is, in fact, empowering. And I would say further, Tom, that uh, the students who've been involved in this program are probably among the most resilient living through this pandemic. They've thought through uh, what disaster looks like and what resilience strategies look like. And further, they know there are worse things that could happen to the nation. They've thought through those, too. And so, in a sense, that gives you your own mental fortification that makes you feel um, more in control of your world, more thoughtful about it, and more hopeful in many ways. Again, that's a different thing than living in the midst of something that's going south. And Matt headed up the Office of Iraq Analysis during the very worst years of the Iraq War. So I'll let him speak to how do you keep up morale when things are really, really tough on the ground. Yeah, I'm interested to know. Yeah, let me... um let me let me quickly sort of uh, draw on a couple of experiences. Um, I've already touched on a piece of this because it's you know part of it. Tom is you, you need the expertise um, to be able to um, to understand and articulate a dynamic you're following. Um, that's only part of the game. The other part of it is um, there's a lot of people with expertise. So you're sitting down with a policymaker who's going to make life and death decisions. Do we send 160,000 troops into Iraq or, or do we pull out? They're getting expertise from all sorts of angles. So the messaging part, you know, first of all, you want to have the expertise and be right about in your analysis. You also need to be bringing in some angles that others are not seeing and then present it to a policy. Let me, let me give you an example. Um, uh, and I'm going to go back a little farther on the time, a little further on the timeline on Iraq. So Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait in 1990, and suddenly um, a pretty bad actor, which already has about 100 billion barrels of oil, is sitting on another 100 billion barrels of oil and is in an area to take, you know, the Saudi oil, which is the mother load. Quickly, a, dis- quickly a, a very simple question came down from the White House, which was, will economic sanctions alone get Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait? Now, there's a million opinions on that. What we found um, as a forceful way to argue our analysis, after a whole lot of other efforts, was something that on the surface seemed kind of simple, but it actually, you know, required as much creativity and anticipatory thinking as it did just flat-out analysis. And one of, the, one of the points we made with the policymakers, including the White House and, and the Hill, was um, we, we were able to show them in living color um, the, econo- the economic hardship that Iraqis had suffered through about eight years of war with the Iranians. And in addition to that, they had a steady stream of body bags coming home from that very bloody war front. And none of that stress caused what we were hoping with economic sanctions is that the Iraqi populace would rise up and toss it on out of power. And what we were able to sort of illustrate was they suffered this, they suffered this economic stuff from the, through eight years of war and all that death, and that still didn't get them to rise up. And so it was, a, you know, it was one of those things that leads to an anticipatory moment. Yep, economic sanctions are not going to get them out. Um, we had similar sort of circumstances with um, the, the other big Iraq event um, we had back in when we invaded in 2003, um, and that was um, we facing a bunch of regime dead-enders and criminals that, you know, this is just going to kind of evaporate away or something else. Well, the answer was something else, and it required a similar sort of creative anticipatory approach to persuade them, nope, uh, you're facing a large, um, increasingly sophisticated, seething, surging, um, Iraqi-Sunni, indigenous 
insurgency that's so well financed it could last for the rest of your lives. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, very, very interesting. Uh, thanks, thanks for those uh, comments. Uh, later in the hour, we're going to return to uh, Matt Barrett and talk about uh, security implications of the current uh, pandemic. But I want to turn uh, next uh, to the other student we have on the line uh, from the Center for Anticipatory Intelligence, and that's James Brazel. Uh, so your paper, you looked at bottlenecks in the pharmaceutical uh, supplies and uh, fragility, certain fragility in the, in the supply chain. And we're, we're looking at least at the potential of, of those problems right now. Uh, do you, I, I guess a similar question I asked to Calvin, you, you probably couldn't have anticipated it, these things would be happening just a couple of months after you wrote your paper. Yeah, um, when I, I drafted and submitted this paper about a year ago, and when I did, um, one of the points that actually really surprised me as I learned about the supply chain was that we are sort of in a perpetual state of shortage of, of an average of about 100 um, drugs of one kind or another. And so I don't know, I don't think uh, I, more than anyone, could have predicted a pandemic but um, I was aware that at some point, you know, there would be someone in my life who is touched by a shortage because we're sort of constantly subject to them because of the, the fragility and the frailty of our, our supply chain right now. And you write in your paper that, that I think that's because, for obvious reasons, the, the su- supply chain wants to be very efficient. But, but to be efficient, there's a certain fragility that's baked in, right? Yes. And as you ask this question, I'll, I'll, make a, I'll make a note here about something we've been talking about. And, and, you've, and I've noticed even you, as during this conversation, you've moved from asking how we predicted things to how we've thought through things. And this is a really, really good illustration of that. So I didn't sort of predict any big shock or break in the supply chain. But I was able to go through and realize, hey, you know, our supply chain has a, has a habit, you know, of concentrating production. Um, often overseas, but not necessarily. And this efficiency uh, is really useful for some things. You know, it, it can make it can make drugs cheaper. Uh, sometimes it's easier to produce more of them. However, it makes us a, um, it makes a subject not just to bottlenecks, but to um, entire collapses. And so, one some of the some of the earlier work this decade about um, our supply chain. A lot of people have noted an anecdote about uh, when a hurricane hit Puerto Rico, all of a sudden the United States was sort of out of saline. And over three quarters, we found out, you know, uh, to to some general outrage that more than three quarters of our saline production was largely coming from Puerto Rico. And that workforce and those facilities had been hit, and there was was no one else to sort of um, pick up the slack or step into supply. Right, and so all of the fragilities and frailties of the supply chain were magnified in that moment because of the habit of concentration that's sort of endemic to the entire supply chain and rational. I want to point out it's not an irrational thing to want to do to to concentrate. It makes a lot of sense business wise, um, but it is not necessarily something that produces a resilient um, framework or a resilient supply chain. And this is one of the, I guess, this is the value of thinking it through, doing these thought experiments, right? Because if you're an individual company, uh, in other words, somebody has to think it through uh, from a general level because an individual company, you're, you're just trying to survive and thrive and, and uh, 
and you're not thinking about the overall system. Absolutely. And so part of the part of the paper touches on this, you know, where is this where's the solution going to come from? Does this need to be government directed? Can it can it happen in an industry wide level? Um, but the the solution is there has to be you know, there's a company's an actor and the solution to this sort of problem, this sort of system wide problem, has to be a framework that is agreed upon at a level above that actor. So whether or not that's coordinated by a regulatory agency or whether or not that's industry consensus, somebody sort of has to decide how to build redundancy and how to make that system resilient. And and so and that is actually another question we deal with a lot. When you have emergent problems, you often have to solve them in what is sort of um, a regulatory or legal gray zone. Who's, whose problem is this? Is this a security problem? Is this a public health problem? And you have to sort of come to terms with you need to, the somebody, whether it is industry or government, needs to pioneer the space and the body that will take care of thinking through and establishing um, best practices and solutions to these problem sets. Yeah, because as you say in your paper, building redundancy will not be popular <laughs> because it's not in the no. not in the best interest of any given company, right? Um, not not in the short term. No, not not in the not in the quarterly term. Of course, for sure not. Um, and it, it might be sold to corporations over time. Um, it is very expensive to have your production disappear if there's a pandemic and you have a product that's primarily sourced from precursors in India, and all of a sudden the villagers who who source that and um, produce that chemical are all of a sudden out of work. Then it might make good long-term business sense, um, and so that that's a conversation to be had again at the industry level, um, because in that case, you know, you do want to. Uh, shore up against sudden and acute shortages. Mm. Uh, just quickly here for this segment, um, do, do you take away, I'm not sure what your major is. What's your major? Oh, I'm getting my master's in political science, okay. and I did my undergraduate in international relations. And that's a good question because the center gives us sort of two chances. First, like Jeannie said, it's the chance to sort of um, mingle and collaborate with people like like Calvin here who have vastly different backgrounds and I and I enjoy being able to sit around and conference with students who have um, expertises that are so diverse from my own but it also gives us the opportunity to sort of nosedive out of our disciplines who's I've, I've done a project about pharmaceutical supply chains I've done another project about um, sort of the opiate crisis and both of them had international aspects, but who, who do those problems belong to? A pre-med student, a business student, a political science student? And so, again, it has provided us the forum to take on those problems, even if they don't fall squarely within our disciplines. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's the point I want to emphasize, that the, the, there's a the great value in this interdisciplinary uh, focus. Um, well, I want to turn, to, we have about five minutes left in the program, I want to turn those, uh, those minutes uh, back to uh, Matt Barrett and uh, maybe just take us at, at a brief, uh, you know, take off some bullet points or brief overview of some of the security implications of the current pandemic, some, some things we may not be thinking about. Tom, can you hear me? I can hear you, yeah, yeah. Maybe. Uh, Junie and I just traded phones for some reason. Okay. Uh, um, I'm having signals. Yeah, let's, let's hit a few of these quickly. Um, 
Anytime uh, governments are under stress, uh, they become more vulnerable to all sorts of actors, including bad ones. The whole wide world's um, set of governments is under stress. So um, bad actors such as, uh, you, can, you can name them, um, the harder edges of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Taliban, um, ISIS, al-Qaeda. A lot of folks think al-Qaeda is done with. It isn't. Those organizations have proven how effective they can be um, when a government is already under stress, is unpopular, um, and is a- unable to deliver services, such as protecting people from a pandemic. Those folks are very practiced at parachuting in, providing some of those services, and trying to push those governments from power. So that's something that's in motion to a great degree right now, um, to a great, you know, more in areas such as the Middle East and South Asia uh, than in uh, America or, or Latin America. Uh, but, you know, we have uh, strategic interests, everything from bases um, to energy interests. That's something that's in motion. We need to talk about the fiscal debt a bit. Um, the U.S. added about 10% of uh, debt to its fiscal situation in the blink of an eye, and we may be adding, adding some more. In the short term, uh, a lot of economists are saying that's not that big of a deal. Our debt service as a percentage of our GDP hasn't changed much, and debt service, not total debt, since World War II. That's because the interest rates are so low, and we have to keep rolling over that debt. So as we roll it into the future, economists will tell you, and I'm one of them, it's not a matter of whether interest rates will rise. They're going to. It's just a matter of when. And when they do, we will suddenly have to roll over a much bigger pile of debt and suddenly that can have huge implications for how much money we have left for to run the country after we've paid that debt. Um, supply chains are breaking down. They've been breaking down before the pandemic occurred, Tom, for all sorts of reasons, uh, popularism, uh, populism and how that's affected uh, political orientation and isolationism across a lot of parts of the country, uh, parts of the world. That's, that's increasing prices and access to stuff that matters. And the last one I'll hit very quickly is um, alliances. So, you know, some of the alliances in the West have been in pretty rough shape. Um, one of the things that's been striking is as we've looked across those alliances to see who's, who's been willing to help the United States um, get some of the uh, um, resources that are needed for the, to manage the pandemic. Pandemic. Practically none of our, our allies uh, made exceptions to their export controls on things such as personal protection equipment. Um, some other folks did, but they didn't. So I think we're going to have to keep a close eye on what happens to our alliances, which are already in kind of a tough stretch, um, as we go f- go through this pandemic and come out the other end. I'm going to I'm going to stop at those four. Yeah, those those are those are very interesting uh, things that we may not have thought of as ramifications from the from the pandemic. We just have about yeah. a minute left, uh, Gene Johnson. I'll give you the last word. The, the, anything else you want to say about the Center for Anticipatory Intelligence or the value of this uh, this field? Wow, I think you have seen the value for yourself, Tom, with those two brilliant students. They just did such a fantastic job of articulating their experience within the courses and the research that they've put together and the way that it helped to think through problem sets that we're currently living. It expands your creativity. It expands the horizons of what you pay attention to. So, for instance, in our first and required course, all students read The Economist, which, as you know, touches on social, technical, political, economic, and even um, cultural, like the arts, kinds of issues. And in the second semester, they read the MIT Tech Review. So they come out of the program widely educated, which means fewer surprises, uh, more tools for thinking through what's in front of you, 
And out of the program, we've had students launch into fascinating occupations. So we have students working for tech companies. We have one who was just hired by Cybercom to look at the Russian disinformation campaign for the next election cycle. We have students who are tracking regional issues on specific countries. So we have, um, and of course, you know, we do our best to facilitate students who are interested in public service as well with the State Department and CIA and the Defense Department. In addition, the center does professional training. So we have done a lot of outreach to the Utah National Guard and have worked with them on some of the initiatives that they are pursuing by providing training to their soldiers and officers. And so the students get exposure to all kinds of different venues where their expertise could be brought to bear and could be really useful. Wonderful. Um We've been talking with several uh, folks associated with the USU Center for Anticipatory Intelligence, or CAI. We've been talking with CAI Director and USU Associate Professor of Political Science Jeannie Johnson. Also, Matt Barrett, co-founder of the Center, former Assistant Director of the CIA, and uh, two CAI, uh, CAI students, James Brazel and Calvin Liu. Thanks, everyone, for participating today. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Support for Project Resilience programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. Support also comes from Cache Valley Chamber of Commerce, offering COVID-19 resources, video meetings, and social media exposure, building value for all types of Cache Valley businesses. Details at cachechamber.com. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM Logan. Also heard online at upr.org.